Hello, I'm Alec, and this is Scandal 101. Happy Friday! I hope you are doing well. I hope that things are going just dandy for you. Ugh, my life has been so crazy busy with law school and all that stuff, so even though I'm bummed I can't do an episode every week, definitely the right decision because, whew, it is busy. Thank you so much for tuning in. I have honestly been so busy with law school, I unfortunately have not been keeping up with much news other than what pops up on my phone, so I think we're just gonna dive right into this episode, skip the little chit-chat at the beginning, because you're here to listen to this episode and not here to listen to me ramble. So, with that being said, the sources I used, I used an article by Bridget Ganger from beyondthedash.com, an article by Dr. Howard Markle from PBS News, an article by the Associated Press from 1986 titled The Chronology of Events in the Tylenol Poisonings, an article from Chicago Mag, which is where a lot of my information came from, a really good article titled Revisiting Chicago's Tylenol Murders, an article by um, Murderpedia, well, Murderpedia the Page, titled Stella Nichols, an article by Marsha Wendorf from interestingengineering.com, and then one Wikipedia page. Those are the sources I used, and you can find those linked in the show notes if you want to check them out. Let's dive into this episode. This episode is The Chicago Tylenol Murders and a Famous Copycat. Whenever you open medicines, or a lot of food products for that matter, you generally have to peel off that very tight seal that's almost impossible to get off without having to like stab it first, and then you can kind of rip it off. Those little seals are pretty annoying, but they serve a really important purpose. They are often called tamper-proof seals or tamper-evidence seals, and they're there to let the consumer know that when they open the product, no one has tampered with their whatever they're buying. That might seem like a no-brainer that, of course, I want the seal there to ensure no one's messing with my stuff, I don't want my stuff to be tampered with, but that mindset and that thought really hasn't been around for too long, and what caused this mindset is this horrific event, and these tamper seals stemmed as a result from what we're about to talk about, so let's get into it. The Chicago Tylenol murders took place between September and October of 1982, killed seven people, and sent shockwaves across the country. And yet, nearly 40 years later, no one knows who did this or why someone did this. On the morning of September 29th, 1982, a 12-year-old girl named Mary Kellerman had both a sore throat and a runny nose. Being sick is never fun. It was around 6.30ish in the morning when she had these symptoms. She lived with her family in Elk Grove Village, which is a suburb of Chicago. She told her parents about the symptoms, and being the good parents that they are, they went and grabbed one tablet of extra-strength Tylenol to try and help make her symptoms a little better. Mary's father said in an interview with the Chicago Tribune, quote, I heard her go into the bathroom, and I heard the door close. 
Then I heard something drop. I went to the bathroom door. I called, Mary, are you okay? There was no answer. I called again, Mary, are you okay? There was still no answer. So I opened the bathroom door and my little girl was on the floor unconscious. She was still in her pajamas. End quote. She was pronounced dead later that morning at 9.56 a.m. The deputy chief medical examiner for Cook County said that she was ordered for an autopsy mainly because of her age and the weird circumstances surrounding her death. But after a brief phone investigation with the father of Mary and then looking into the ambulance report, initially nothing seemed out of the ordinary. Firefighter Keyworth said, quote, In what we call the ambulance report, the medications were listed as Tylenol. Well, everybody in the world took Tylenol. That didn't seem out of order. End quote. Later that day, 27-year-old Adam Janus, a postal worker from Arlington Heights, was taking a sick day. He felt like he was getting a cold, so after he picked up his kids from preschool, he stopped by the local jewel market and got some Tylenol. He went home, he had lunch, and then said to his wife, quote, I'm going to take two Tylenol and then lie down, end quote. Just a few minutes later, he stumbled into the kitchen and collapsed. Thomas Kim, the medical director of Northwest Community Hospital's intensive care unit, said that they could not resuscitate him. He made an initial diagnosis of cardiac death, and after trying to explain this to Adam's wife and family and just trying to console a family now in sudden grief from this unexpected death, his family, Adam's family, went back to Adam's house. The conversation between Dr. Kim and Adam's family took place around 3.15 that day. At 3.45 p.m. that same day, Mary Lynn Rayner, who was a 27-year-old woman who had recently given birth to her fourth child, was at home and wasn't feeling well. She took some Tylenol to help her symptoms, and shortly after, she collapsed. Mary's husband said about Mary, quote, We were together for a long time. She was an excellent mother. We had four children. The baby was a week old. I came home right after she had fallen on the floor. An ambulance came and rushed her to Central DuPage Hospital in Winfield. I'm not going to say a whole lot more than that. End quote. Around 5 p.m. that same day, Adam, again the postal worker who had died, his family was back at Adam's house mourning Adam's death. Adam's younger brother, named Stanley, had chronic back pain and it was bothering him much as chronic pain does, so he asked his wife Teresa to go see if she could find some Tylenol. She went, she kind of looked around the house, she found some, and then came back with it. She gave Stanley two pills, and she also took two pills herself, because I'm sure with all of this craziness going on, she maybe had a headache. So Stanley took two pills, and then Teresa herself also took two pills. Both of them collapsed shortly after taking these pills. Dr. Kim, again, who had spoken to the Adam, Adam's family earlier, he was told at 5.30, as he was about to head out of the office, that Adam's family was coming back. And he just assumed that it was because the parents might not be feeling well because the sudden loss of your child, it's going to make you upset, you're probably not going to feel well. But he was then told by a nurse that it wasn't the parents, it was the brother, a young, healthy guy. He asked what happened, and the nurse said, quote, They are doing CPR, and they are working on the wife too, end quote. 
It was at this point that Dr. Kim decided, I'm going to stay here and see if I can figure this out. At 6.30pm, again, all of this happening on the same day, Mary McFarland, a 31-year-old woman from Elmhurst, told her, co- told her co-workers that she was having a bad headache. Her brother would later say to the Associated Press, quote, She went into the back room and took I don't know how many Tylenol, at least one, obviously, and within minutes, she was on the floor, end quote. Nurse Jensen, who had been pretty active throughout this whole process, got a call from Chuck Kramer, who was from the Arlington Heights Fire Department, and Chuck told Nurse Jensen, quote, There's something going on here. We had a death this morning, and now we brought in two more from the same house, and they want a public health person here, and you're the only public health person I know, end quote. Nurse Jensen then went to the hospital. The deputy medical examiner was told, quote, Doctor, we've got something unusual going on. We had this family in Arlington Heights where one person died, and then the brother and sister-in-law came over, and now the brother is dead and the sister-in-law is in very serious condition and is not expected to live, end quote. Three people from one house, being sick, two dead, one barely hanging on, no one knows what's going on, and in other areas of Chicago, people... Two other people have dropped dead. Nurse Jensen went to Adams' house around 8 p.m. with investigators, but the investigators and her, they didn't really see anything unusual. There was a medicine cabinet, prescription medications, just normal stuff like that. Then Nurse Jensen kind of had a hunch, so she started to look at the bottle of Tylenol. Quote, I found a bottle of Tylenol and there were six capsules missing and three people dead. In my mind, it had to be something to do with the Tylenol. And of course, there was no protective sealing on this or any over-the-counter drugs. They just had cotton tucked in there. So we went back to Northwest Community Hospital and we took the bottle with us. End quote. At 8.15 p.m., Stanley was pronounced dead. At 9.30 that night, Paula Prince, who was a flight attendant of United Airlines, was coming off of a flight from Las Vegas and stopped at a Walgreens at 1601 North Wells Street to get some Tylenol. At 10 p.m. that night, Nurse Jensen was convinced that the Tylenol was the culprit behind these deaths. But no one believed her. Quote, I plopped the bottle down and said, this is the cause. And of course, nobody would believe me. And I stamped my feet. They said, oh, no, it couldn't be. It couldn't be. End quote. Dr. Kim recalled Nurse Jensen saying, quote, maybe it's the Tylenol. And Dr. Kim thought, well, that's fine. But at the time, that was just something, that was just someone saying something. I was very frustrated and I was very desperate. How come I couldn't figure out what was wrong with these people? End quote. Luckily, for some odd reason, paramedics had inventoried the bottle of Tylenol that Mary, the 12-year-old, had taken the pill from. The police department from Elk Grove Village brought brought the bottle of Tylenol to the investigator, investigator Pichos, at the hospital. So these investigations are starting to happen, some more evidence is starting to come in, and this whole time Dr. Kim is trying to think, what could be going on with these people? He's heard the suggestions of the Tylenol from Nurse Jensen, And he's like, okay, maybe, but he's like, but Tylenol itself isn't going to kill people unless you're deathly allergic. And as far as we know, these people aren't. So what's, what's causing this? And the only thing that was coming to Dr. Kim's mind was cyanide. 
but cyanide it, it doesn't make sense because where would the exposure have come from where where were these people all of these different people have ingested cyanide again he had these doubts but cyanide was really the only thing that made sense so he decided to check the blood for cyanide when investigator Pichos got the Tylenol bottles, he saw that the control numbers between the two bottles were the same. Both had the control number MC2880. The deputy medical examiner told the investigator to open the bottles and smell them. And that may seem like a weird request if you're not familiar with true crime stuff, but investigator Pichos was like, okay, so he opened the bottles and looked at the pills. Looking at the pills, nothing seemed unusual, they all looked normal, but both bottles smelled like almonds. Of course, as true crime fanatics know, the smell of almonds means cyanide, or generally means cyanide, but just fun fact, I think it's like only half of the population can smell the almond smell associated with cyanide, so it was really fortunate that Investigator Pichos was one of those individuals who could smell cyanide, because at that moment it was unofficially confirmed that there is cyanide in this Tylenol. Early the next morning, Dr. Kim got the blood results back, and now it was official. Cyanide, 100 to 1,000 times the lethal dose, was in the victim's blood. At 3.15 a.m., so those blood results came back around 1.15 a.m. the next morning, and at 3.15 a.m., this is the day after people started dying, Mary McFarland, the 31-year-old woman from Elmhurst, was pronounced dead. At 9.30 a.m. later that morning, Mary Rayner, the woman who had just given birth to her fourth child, is now pronounced dead. At 10 a.m. that morning, an attorney from Johnson & Johnson, the parent company and the manufacturer of Tylenol, came to the medical examiner's office and was told that cyanide is like the cause of this and that it was found in the Tylenol. Roy Dames, the CEO of the Cook County Medical Examiner's Office, said, quote, My first reaction was, let's make sure there's no other connection between these deaths before we go and tell people not to take Tylenol. So they proved it to me, and I said, great, let's go. I believe I talked to the CEO of the company that made Tylenol and I informed him that we were going to have a press conference and his reaction was, do you have to? And I said, well, do you have a better idea? And he said, no. End quote. When Nurse Jensen woke up that next morning, she got her confirmation that she was right. They were officially publicly saying it was the Tylenol. Nurse Jensen later that day pushed for all Tylenol to be recalled from stores, and despite resistance, at 3 p.m. that day, Tylenol from the lot MC2880 was recalled. Of course, this announcement freaked people out, so lots of people were starting to call doctors, medical examiners, the poison hotline, and they were asking questions like, I took Tylenol, am I going to be okay? I gave my child Tylenol, are they going to be okay? And basically the response was this, if you're the person that took Tylenol and you're calling me to ask if you're going to be okay, you're okay because if you took contaminated Tylenol, you would already be dead. That's how quick this was happening. You took the Tylenol and within minutes, you would be dead or basically clinging on to life. So if you're asking me if you're okay, you're going to be fine. I'm sure that had to be both kind of comforting to the people calling, but also terrifying, because then it's like, 
okay, do I want to take any other medicine? Because it sounds like if I take medicine and it's contaminated, I'm going to have no chance to live. On Friday, October 1st, Teresa Janus, who was Stanley's wife and Adam's sister-in-law, was taken off life support and was pronounced dead. At 5 p.m. that day, police discovered the body of Paula Prince, who was the flight attendant, in her apartment. Her family hadn't been able to reach her, so they called the police to do a wellness check. The police found her body in the bathroom and near the bathroom, and the Tylenol bottle from which she took the pills was still open on the counter. Quote, She took the Tylenol in the bathroom, and by the time she got to the threshold of the door, she was dead. End quote. There are security photos of Paula from the Walgreens when she bought the Tylenol, and these photos are kind of eerie because it's essentially you're watching someone buy her death ticket. Unfortunately, so even though there are these photos of Paula buying the Tylenol, there were no cameras set up in place to take pictures of the aisles to see if there was anyone who was maybe tampering with the Tylenol or who was maybe like putting Tylenol on the shelves that wasn't already there. Unfortunately, the security cameras just didn't have those pictures, but they did get the picture of Paula buying the Tylenol. The mayor of Chicago was informed of the severity of the situation later that night and said, quote, What was on my mind was, how many others? We called the superintendent of police, the commissioner of the, of the fire department, and the doctor in charge of the board of health. We had them meet me at the symphony concert in a back room. I thought, well, we've got to prepare. We ordered flyers printed, particularly in foreign languages. We planned everything to make sure that the public was notified. That was phase one. So I went down to my office. We were waiting on all of these different sources to give us information. More and more was coming in, and there was no doubt that somebody had tainted the Tylenol. End quote. On Monday, October 4th, the Chicago City Council passed an ordinance requiring tamper-resistant packaging for all drugs sold in stores. On October 5th, Johnson & Johnson recalled all Tylenol products nationwide, 31 million bottles with a value of $100 million. Investigations into these Tylenol tamperings continued into the next few weeks. Leads and tips were coming in, some of them were helpful, most of them were unhelpful. Even though this primarily happened in the Chicago area, this was of course now a national news story. In the investigation, there were some individuals who had been let go by Johnson & Johnson that were looked into, but none of these leads really panned out. One member of the investigation said, quote, The distressing thing is that there were a number of people who had absolutely nothing to do with the offense, and they were sorry that they didn't. They wish they had done it. End quote. On October 6th, a more promising lead came up. There was a letter that was sent to Johnson & Johnson demanding $1 million to stop the Tylenol killings. The letter was traced back to James Lewis, who lived in New York, and he apparently wasn't the guy. It seemed like he was just trying to get some money, but some people in the investigation think that he was the person behind it. Attorney General Fawner said, quote, Do I think James Lewis was involved? I did, and I do. And the head of the FBI office here at the time, I can't speak for him, but I think he felt as I did. But we could never put him in the city, in the places, at the right time. End quote. The investigation 
kind of dwindled out and phased as it seemed like nothing else was going on. No new big leaves were coming up. And as upsetting of an ending as that is, that's really it. There are theories that one person knew a victim, like they were targeting a victim, and then they tampered with other pills to cover up their crime. There are theories that it was someone who just wanted to kill people randomly and cause mass panic, and they really did. They caused new regulations for medication, recalling of medication worth hundreds of millions of dollars, mass panic in the public for taking medicine and just consuming products in general. It affected the economy, so if someone was just wanting to create a scene, they really did. But... No one knows who was behind this, and to this day, nearly 40 years later, there's still really no answers. In terms of tamper-proof packaging, it really started in 1982 right after these Tylenol poisonings, and in 1983, Congress passed the Tylenol Bill, which made it a federal offense to tamper with consumer products. By 1989, the FDA had established federal guidelines for manufacturers, and manufacturers are now required to make certain products tamper-proof. So some examples you probably see in your daily life, of course, with medicine, you often have like that really tight kind of aluminum-looking seal. If you have milk, you twist the cap and it like really snaps off. That's a tamper-proof seal because once it's snapped like that, you can't put it back. And of course, there are tons of other products that have these tamper seals. I think a lot of toothpaste have a little one at the end or the cap snaps off as well. So all of those little things that you may not notice resulted because of this horrific act. The victims, just to say their names again, of these Tylenol murders, Mary Kellerman was 12 years old, Adam Janus was 27 years old, Stanley and Teresa Janus, 25 and 20 years old, Mary Rayner, 27 years old, Mary McFarlane, 29 years old, and then Paula Prince, 35 years old. Of course, as with horrific crimes, there were copycats that took place after this, such as in 1986, there were three deaths from capsule medicine that was tampered with. In Yonkers, New York, a woman died after taking an extra-strength Tylenol capsule, which had cyanide in it. But probably the most well-known is the case of Excedrin from Washington State. Stella Nickel was married to Bruce Nickel, and they lived in Auburn, Washington. Bruce was a heavy equipment operator who had a drinking problem, but apparently Stella was cool with this. From what I read, it kind of seemed like they would go out and get drinks all the time, and so it helped with her social life. But later on in their marriage, he went to rehab and eventually became sober, which Stella resented. Her bar visits were dwindling as Bruce was becoming sober, so she decided to take up a new hobby to help her kind of adjust to this new lifestyle. She wanted to have an in-home aquarium, which it's like, okay, get it, whatever you want to do. On June 5th, 1986, Bruce came home from work and took some Excedrin for a headache that he told Stella he had. Similarly to what happened in the Tylenol story, he collapsed minutes later and died shortly after at a nearby hospital. His death was initially ruled as natural causes, possibly emphysema, but they weren't 100% sure. Less than one week later, Susan Snow, who was a 40-year-old bank manager in Auburn, took two Excedrin for a headache she had. 
her husband also took two Excedrin from the same bottle for his arthritis. The husband left for work, and unfortunately, a few minutes later, their 15-year-old daughter found Susan collapsed on the bathroom floor. Susan died the same day. During an autopsy of Susan, the medical examiner smelled almonds, and after testing, it was confirmed that she died of cyanide poisoning. Susan's house was swept, and it was found that the Excedrin that she took was laced with cyanide. Looking at the bottle, there were three more tablets in the bottle that had cyanide in the capsule. Luckily, the pills that Susan's husband took were not laced with cyanide, so he just was lucky and did not take this, those other cyanide pills. An investigation was launched, and another tainted bottle was found in a store nearby in Kent, Washington. After this was found, all Excedrin was recalled from the Seattle area, and a $300,000 reward was offered for information leading to the capture of the person responsible. With all of the publicity of these poisonings coming out, Stella came forward to police and told police that her husband died suddenly after taking Excedrin from a bottle with the same lot number. Bruce's remains were tested, and it was confirmed that he also died from cyanide poisoning. After this finding, both Susan's husband and Stella filed wrongful death suits against the manufacturer of Excedrin, and even though they did this, the FDA was also investigating, but the FDA found no traces of cyanide at the manufacturing plant where Excedrin was made. So, what's going on? Where is the cyanide coming from? On June 18th, all Excedrin products were recalled from the United States. And then three days later, another cyanide-contaminated Excedrin bottle was found at the same store where Susan bought her Excedrin bottle. After examining the pills, the FBI investigators found something unusual about the pills. Of course, the cyanide was not supposed to be there, but they also found an unknown green substance. Further tests revealed that the green substance was an algicide used in home aquariums known as algae destroyer. Later into the investigation, both Susan's husband and Stella were asked to take polygraph tests. Stella claimed that she was just too shaken up to take the exam. Investigators became a little more suspicious of Stella when she claimed that two bottles of contaminated Excedrin that she had were bought at different times and in different locations. And investigators are like, okay, that's weird, because only five contaminated bottles have been found, so what are the chances that she would have two of them, but not only that, she's claiming that she bought two separate contaminated bottles from two locations at two different times. What are the chances of that? If you're waiting for it, here it comes. More suspiciously, Stella had taken out a life insurance policy on her husband, and it had a clause that if her husband's death was accidental, the amount increased an additional $100,000. Initially, when her husband's death was ruled natural causes by the doctor, she was known to have disputed and kind of fought with the doctor, arguing that it couldn't be natural causes. It also looked like Bruce's signatures were forged on two of the policy forms. Investigators were later able to verify that Stella had purchased Algae Destroyer from a local fish store, and it was later speculated that Stella had crushed the cyanide in the same container that she crushed the Algae Destroyer in, 
and being the messy slob she is, didn't wash it in between uses. The thing that really helped close this case for investigators was Stella's adult daughter coming forward and telling police that Stella had told her multiple times that she wanted Bruce dead. Stella had apparently told her daughter that she had tried to poison him with foxglove before, but when that failed, she decided to go to the library to research other methods and came across cyanide. Police subpoenaed records from the library, and the records showed that Stella had checked out multiple books, such as Human Poisonings from Native and Cultivated Plants, as well as Deadly Harvests. The police fingerprinted other books in the library, and they found Stella's fingerprints on the pages discussing cyanide in books that she never checked out. She was later arrested in late 1987 and was eventually found guilty of five counts of product tampering, two of which resulted in deaths. Stella was sentenced to two 90-year terms for the deaths and then an additional three 10-year terms for the other product tampering charges. She is currently 79 years old and has a release date of 2040, assuming she lives that long. And with that, that concludes the Chicago Tylenol murders and a famous copycat. This case is just so fascinating to me. Um, Someone suggested this episode, and I honestly thought I did it already because I know I talked about it in a different episode, but the fact that still no one knows the Tylenol murders, who did it, or why it was done, and then also this fascinating copycat case, which is of course horrific, but again, just shows how stupid criminals can be. And uh, I mean, don't commit crime, but it's just interesting to look at these crimes with hindsight and seeing the very simple mistakes that were made. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I'm going to post photos related to this case on social media, on Instagram at Scandal101Podcast, on Twitter at Scandal101Pod, Facebook, search Scandal 101 Podcast, you'll find the page there. The website is scandal101podcast.podbean.com. You will find the show notes there. You can also find the show notes linked in the episode description. And then an email if you want to suggest an episode, topic, or send in your personal scandal is scandal101podcast at gmail.com. Again, thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. This has been episode 64 of Scandal 101.